electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, two anniversaries, two different tunes. Holding business accountable for promises made after the 2020 death of George Floyd, BET founder Robert Johnson. CEOs and companies, I hope out of good intention, some of it may be just we don't know what to do, so the knee-jerk thing is announce a pledge. But a pledge is meaningless if it's not fulfilled. How corporate America can reflect all of America. The community deserves to know that if you pledge to help us, we trust you're committed, but verify. And a story special to this podcast, CNBC's Frank Holland with a reporter's notebook on covering the centennial of the June 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So many people who come from all over the country and people who were from there that are returning all kind of brought together almost like a pilgrimage. It's Friday, June 4th, 2021. Squawk Hot begins right now. One year ago, the first week of June in 2020, we saw a reckoning in our neighborhoods, in our virtual workplaces, about race in America. The death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police prompted a wave of protests for racial justice, for awareness, and corporate America had a response. More than $1 billion has been invested and donated by U.S. financial companies in 2021, aiming to support or provide capital to black businesses or to address the racial wealth gap and other economic and social inequalities. Black businesses were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, 41% closed, compared to just 17% of white-owned businesses. Robert Johnson, founder of Black Entertainment Television and a successful entrepreneur for decades, joined us a year ago, shortly after the death of George Floyd, when civil unrest was high. I think this country has the rise in 68. Now it's 2020. We will see this happen time and time again. So my request to the CEOs, and I'm sure they will understand this, now is the time to go big. Short answers to long, horrific questions about the stain of slavery are not going to solve the inequality problem. We need to focus on wealth creation and wealth generation. And to do that, we must bring the descendants of slaves into equality with this nation. And Johnson returned to talk to Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin about the pledges businesses have made to further the goals of racial and economic equality and how things have developed over this past year. Here's Joe. Always a pleasure, uh, Bob. And uh, you think we need, you, you even bring up Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. You think we need to make sure that these pledges are fo- uh, followed through. And you, you actually want to do this in a, a systematic way with, with people to check on this. Yeah, Joe, absolutely. I do think that because if the, the truth be known, after every social crisis in America, 
white-owned businesses rush to say that they're going to put dollars to try to address the problem. You can go back to the riots in Detroit. You can go back to the Rodney King beating in Los Angeles. And, of course, now to the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Movement. And CEOs and companies, I, I, I hope out of good intentions, some of it may be just we don't know what to do, so the knee-jerk thing is announce a pledge. But a pledge is meaningless if it's not fulfilled. And companies should know this because every time a company makes a statement to investors on Wall Street, the next quarter, they're giving their quarterly report on how they performed on that investment strategy or that allocation of capital. And I see no reason why we shouldn't do this on pledges since they make them public. They have to be prepared to back them up publicly with verification that they fulfilled their pledge. So that's why I propose the creation, and I hope the business companies and CEOs will support this, a pledge verification committee made up of, of uh, black executives and individuals from various disciplines to have these companies come up and report not only their announcement, which they put out with a lot of public fanfare, but also the results. It doesn't have to be quarterly. It could be uh, twice a year or whatever. But the community deserves to know that if you pledge to help us, the community deserves to know and be informed is how well you're doing. And so it's Ronald Reagan. Trust. We trust you're committed, but verify. Bob, you should, uh, obviously, you're willing to, to take this on. And, you know, pledging is one thing. And, and there, at the time, there were some companies that didn't really seem to know exactly where the money would be best spent either. So I, you know exactly how to do this, I think, in terms of capital formation for, for minority businesses and, and everything else. Would that be part of this? You would... You would put together uh, things that, you know, where we can really get the most bang out of, out of every dollar? Well, Joe, you're absolutely on point, because if you think about it, what companies should do before they announce a pledge, why don't they uh, get together a group of black CEOs? And I, I'm, I'm not talking about black CEOs of, of, of publicly traded companies. I'm talking about black CEOs who are members of the black enterprise BE100. Uh, people who understand what it is to operate black-controlled businesses and to compete in the marketplace as a black-owned business. And that way, they would be getting it both ways. They'd be getting guidance and advice, and they would be pulling together people who they can come and say, "How are we? we'll report to you as to how well we're doing. One of the things, Joe, that I'm most concerned about is when I hear these announcements, and, and keep in mind, and during Barack Obama's presidency, we were, we were supposedly post-racial. So all of a sudden, now flash forward to today, because of the murder of George Floyd and other police shootings and the Black Lives Mo uh, Movement, companies are scrambling. They're scrambling on diversity and inclusion. They're scrambling on investment. But a lot of the money, to be honest, Joe, the people who work in these companies have no experience, no expertise, no background in investing in black-owned businesses. So why hey, not grab black business owners who have done it, who've started with no dollars and grown to be successful? Why don't bring those individuals in and let them be a part of the capital allocation process? And I'm afraid what companies do is they make announcements, they hand it over to their corporate affairs people, 
or they hand it over to someone in HR, but they don't turn it over to an experienced investor. And starting, as you would know, Joe, starting a small business, black or white, requires intense engagement in the growth of that business. So when companies say we want to launch a number of black ventures and small businesses, I can tell you, that's the toughest thing in the world to do. And finally, I would say this, why not put some of this money into black businesses that can get to scale? There are a large number of businesses that are more than just mom and pops. But what they need is growth capital, they need strategic investment capital, and they need strategic relationships with the investors. That, to me, is a better approach. But on this issue of verification, I would be more than willing to pull together some senior black executives and people from various disciplines and say to the companies, you made it public, so why wouldn't you, uh, what would be the concern about making public your performance? So, pledge, verify. Hey, Bob, wanted to ask you if, in the end, you were supportive of corporations' role uh, on some of these voting rights issues, uh, both in Georgia and then you probably just saw in Texas, Texas Democrats actually uh, blocked the proposed law that would have restricted voting rights. A lot of companies, big companies, American Airlines, Dell and others came out against it, oftentimes on behalf of African Americans. Well, you know, Andrew, I I believe that as a CEO who's concerned about his company and concerned about his community and concerned about the country as a whole has the right to voice his or her opinion on political social issues. My only concern is make sure you're doing it with the right information and for the right reason. You're not just doing it to placate uh, a certain constituency group that is coming after you. I've seen so much of what I call cancel culture pressure come up, come against companies and, and they cave for no reason at all. I, I'll never forget, and I spoke to the gentleman at Goya, the uh, Hispanic owner of a food uh, business. He was basically attacked because he happened to go to the White House and Trump was, impress- was the president on a Hispanic Appreciation Day of some sort. Now, can you imagine a immigrant come to this country, work hard, build a successful business to serve his population and others, and all of a sudden he's attacked because he was in the wrong place with the wrong guy, according to certain people. To me, I think these companies, when they look at social issues, go deeper into it, figure out how best to address it, and don't get on a bandwagon. And but aren't, and, and, but this is the hard part. This is why I knew I asked you this, Bob, would be a complicated issue. Because aren't these social issues intertwined with the issue that you're trying to get at in terms of inequality in particular for this community? I don't think they're intertwined. I think they are uh, results of lack of access to capital, a huge wealth gap between black and white families, is a contributor to social problems. There's no but doubt about it. But if you can't it. vote, you can't deal with any of these things. Well, no, you can. You can deal with them on the base of more knowledge, more information, bringing in black advisors and, and people who have been there, done that. 
to help you out rather than just getting in a room and say, gee, things are bad. Let's issue a press release and say we're going to give millions of dollars to the black into the black community. Well, who are you giving it to? I can tell you right now for a fact, you know, I and I'm not bragging on myself, but I, I think I got a pretty darn good track record on starting businesses and creating talented people. Three of the 13 or so black uh, CEOs of publicly traded companies worked for me. And I served on probably 10, 11 company boards over time. I have not heard one call from any CEO committed to put money behind black businesses, large or small, to say, Bob, what do you think about this? How do we go about it? And I would be willing to bet you dollars the donuts that if you would call the guys at Black Enterprise and, and ask them, how many of you got a call from a CEO and say, hey, you got a great business. What can we do with you strategically to help you grow your business and hire more people, put more capital into your, into your community and the like? So when I see this number, I, I saw on um, another uh, network, I won't mention the name, some 50 billion of pledges since the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement and so on. Of that 50 billion, I'm not vouching for them to tell you what I saw, is that 250 million has been deployed. 50 billion pledges, 250 million deployed. Now, imagine if you're a company and you announce to, to Wall Street that I'm going to invest $50 billion in an enterprise in a business. That was your commitment. And then you go to your quarterly report and, they, and the best is the analyst. I said, how much have you spent? And you say, I've spent only $250 million. They would start saying, what's the problem? And here's the, right. here's the answer to that. Don't make a pledge unless you're prepared to verify. Bob, I there agree with you 100% on on verifying the pledges. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on verifying the pledges. I just want to go back to what you said about Goya. Um, Goya's founder didn't get in trouble because he appeared with Donald Trump. He got in trouble because of what he said. He said that Donald Trump was still the real, legitimate, and still actual president of the United States. And he said in Georgia, the ballots that Biden won were not legitimate. And he claimed the mail-in ballots were fraudulent. It was more than just appearing with Donald Trump. And uh, uh, Becky, we're a little bit uh, mistaken. I'm talking about uh, when he was, this was when Donald Trump was still in the White House. This had nothing to do with the Georgia issue. This was when Trump was president of the United States. Right. And the Goya guy went there as part of Hispanic Commemoration Day or something like that. That had yeah, absolutely said, nothing to do with the Georgia. Yeah, he, he said some positive things about Trump when he was there, though, Bob, which... which uh, yeah, I know. And so, and so, so, the, so the, the theory behind that, Joe and Becky, is so you... You shoot the guy for having a free thought. Right. You can go in and I mean, mean, you say you're a country of immigrants. We welcome industrial, industrious people to come to the country. And then all of a sudden he makes the wrong choice and says something about a Republican president who was elected by a huge number of people. And all of a sudden, this wonderful, industrious, committed immigrant who comes to this country and lives the American dream. Right. We got to cancel him because he said something that's all right. Hey, this Bob, is a problem. I, I can't I can't let I'd, I'd go till nine o'clock with you. You know that we opened this, the uh, show with the Tulsa issue. I mean, this is an interesting story. When I was a kid, for some reason, there used to be an article uh, piece in the, in the papers called Ripley's Believe It or Not. And the one thing I saw 
It said, believe it or not, what was the first country in the only city in America ever bombed from the air by an Air Force? And that was Tulsa to quell the riot. That's the first time U.S. air power has ever been used against or any air power from any country in the United States. It was Tulsa. All right, Bob, uh, getting uh, we, we talk like talk AMC. We like to talk so many things. It's great to have you on, Bob. And, All right, and, hey guys, bring me back now that you can. I can see you face to face. I got a yep. spot right here. We, I yep. was just thinking that we'll, we will see you soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod Black, Wall Street revisited after a century. The Greenwood story is the story of black folks at their best. And history that should have been remembered. CNBC's Frank Holland takes us inside the story. Does everyone agree that Greenwood is an idea or is it an actual geographic location? What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 100 years ago this week, a thriving business district in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was burned, bombed, and destroyed in a racial attack. Tulsa in the 1920s was a boomtown, and on the north side of the railroad tracks was the segregated neighborhood of Greenwood, built by freed slaves and their descendants, home to a community of African-American doctors, lawyers, small businesses, restaurants. Greenwood was known as Black Wall Street. And on the night of May 31st, 1921, everything changed. On the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, there's a new push by financial companies to create and support black business. Frank Holland is in Tulsa. He's got more on this. CNBC's Frank Holland reported on the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre this week, and I caught up with him about covering this story. It was a very unique situation. It was one I'd never experienced before because it was so many people who had come from all over the country and even all over the state and people who were from there that are returning um, all kind of brought together almost like a pilgrimage. And a lot of people talk about how money circulated through Black Wall Street um, within that community. Well, this is kind of the inverse, not in a bad way, though. Um, It was people coming with ideas and they were circulating the ideas from all over the country and people just came to exchange information and contacts and to talk about projects they were working on. The second day I was there was a bit more emotional. Um, people were very anxious about um, President Biden coming. Um, not anxious in a bad way. Um, just anxious, like, what was he going to say? You know, how was he going to refer to the incident? On this first day of June, smoke darkened the Tulsa sky, rising from 35 blocks of Greenwood that were left in ash and ember, raised in rubble. Less than 24 hours... In less than 24 hours, 1,100 black homes and businesses were lost. Of course, there was a lot of talk about reparations. Uh, that was a conversation that you heard a lot of places, and, and people are wondering, like, you know, would he say the United States would uh, provide reparations to at least the living survivors or descendants of Greenwood residents? So um, just a lot of buzz. I'd like to pause for a moment of silence for the fathers, the mothers, the sisters, sons and daughters, friends of God and Greenwood. They deserve the dignity and they deserve our respect. 
May their souls rest in peace. My fellow Americans, this was not a riot. This was a massacre. What did it mean for the people in Tulsa, for survivors, for anyone who's been following this story uh, to have the American president come and use language like that? You know, not only did he did he say that, that it was a massacre, um, he, I believe he referred to it as a act of hate and a domestic terror incident. Um, and I, I think that gave a lot of validation to people um, who felt like this was a still, even though we've seen um, it chronicled in movies and TV shows and things like that. There's many people there who still thought this was a underreported and unrecognized chapter of American history. But I do have to say I have to couch it with meaningful, but for a lot of people just seeing it as a first step, like just a, you know, a, a, a beginning of what needs to be done. I'd like to talk to you about being a reporter. Um, and I'm curious what it's like balancing such an emotional story with business news. You know, that, that can be difficult. Um, this story had so many economic tie-ins to it. Um, it made it a little bit easier. Um, and, you know, I, I actually got to report on Squawk Box, which was great as always. Um, and what the story I did on uh, June 1st was about the push by financial companies to, you know, create support or provide capital to Black businesses. So there were so many other ways that this story kind of branched back into, you know, uh, the bread and butter of CNBC. Um, so that made it a little bit easier to not be quite so emotional. But when you go there, you can definitely kind of feel, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't know the right way to say it. And it's not a spiritual thing, but just like the ghost of the past there, you can feel like there was, this was once a place where a lot of things were happening and it was a very different environment than it is today. Um, just for comparison, I also went to Minneapolis to cover the Derek Chauvin trial um, following the death of George Floyd. Um, that was an extremely emotional situation. This one was a century before and I felt a little bit more detached, but there were also so many positive aspects to it. The fact that this area existed and that these people were able to overcome segregation and Jim Crow laws and systemic racism and just flat out hate and build a home for themselves. So it was just, there were so many hopeful tie-ins to this story. Um, it was a little bit easier to not be so emotional about it. A mob of white Americans, tacitly supported by local politicians and police, killed more than 300 black residents of Tulsa. The Committee on the Judiciary, Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties will come to order. And finally, we are getting a clearer picture of a massacre that was almost erased from history. Finally, I'd like to ask all members and witnesses, both those in person and those appearing remotely, to mute your microphones when you are not speaking. Those in the room, I'd like to ask you to keep your face mask on at all times, unless you're speaking or unless you're over 100 years old. There are just three survivors who were there in 1921. They recently testified to a House subcommittee. There's been an agreement the subcommittee will forego questions of the first panel, and we will simply, unlike most Congress people, just listen and learn. Our first witness is Miss Viola Fletcher, also known, if I can, Mother Fletcher, thank you. My name is Viola Ford Fletcher. I'm the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm the sister of Hughes Van Ellis, who is also here today. I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. What did you think of Mother Fletcher's testimony in Washington? I 
I think uh, Mother Fletcher's account was one of those bone-chilling things I've ever heard in my life. On May 31st in 21, I went to bed at my family's home in Greenwood, neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night, was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors, and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Still, Greenwood should have given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. The fact that the memory is so vivid in her mind 100 years later, um, I think really speaks to the horror of it. And, you know, I, I think that was also on the other side of the people that committed the crimes. I think that was part of their intention to leave, you know, uh, uh, people with a message and an impression that they don't belong there. Oh, my goodness. We lost everything that day, our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America. Tell me what Greenwood is like today. How, how would you describe the neighborhood? You know, I would describe it as an extremely gentrified neighborhood. Um, there's a big minor league ballpark there for a minor league baseball team. Um, on the most prominent corner, what was the most prominent corner of Greenwood, what was kind of the, the main street of Black Wall Street at uh, Greenwood and Archer, there's now a sports bar there. There are some Black-owned businesses, certainly. Um, it's certainly a gentrified area. And on one side of it, uh, there's a university. So a very different environment than you might expect. The legacy is alive. The tenacity is still here. And we will always remember. Uh, I'm Regina Goodwin, um, uh, state representative of House District 73. I'm blessed to represent uh, the Greenwood area, uh, amongst other areas. Uh, representative Regina Goodwin. Um, I believe on, on this podcast, you're going to play a, a clip of her um, <laughs> on the floor of the House of Representatives in the state of Oklahoma. So I think people have a, a sense of what she's like. I just asked for some degree of decorum. She's a very spirited person, a really bright person. I am a descendant of 1921 uh, race massacre survivors. I'm a descendant of James Henry Goodwin and Carly Marie Goodwin. Uh, Ed Goodwin and Anna Goodwin was my great aunt. Ed Goodwin was my grandfather who uh, was the owner and he established the Oklahoma Eagle, which is the oldest black newspaper in Oklahoma. And, and I'm grateful to say that I am straight out of Greenwood. And someone who does not mince words um, <laughs> one bit. And she just told me flat out, um, she wanted to know, you know, what story I was coming here to do. And I told her, you know, I didn't come there to do a story. I came here to hear your story and what you think. And she just kind of went, oh, and just looked at me for a little bit. Representative Goodwin's great-grandfather and grandfather saw their stores destroyed, along with the Stratford Hotel, the Dreamland Theater, and other prominent Black businesses on the night of May 31st, 1921. Goodwin Building, right there. See Goodwin Building? 
right? So that's the building that was burned. Uh, there's the Dreamland Theater down at the bottom. Regina Goodwin is the fourth generation to publish the Oklahoma Eagle. You can see the paper is very dear to her heart and the fact that it's a family-owned business that still operates in the Greenwood District and where they still own the building is very important to her family. The Greenwood story is the story of black folks at their best. It's the story of entrepreneurship. It's the story of the spirit of community, uh, collective economics, uh, cooperative economics. That's our story. It doesn't just belong to Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's the story of black folks in America. In order to build, in order to grow again, you have to have a sense of place. You have to own the land. You have to have capital. You have to have investors. All of that has to come together in order to build businesses again. We just can't say, oh, remembering this happened a century ago, let's move on in a positive direction. An important uh, middle component for her was to repair. And she was very, you know, very vocal that she believes that some form of reparation should be paid at the very least to the living survivors. Reparations are part of the solution. There's still trauma there. There's still generational wealth that was lost. There's still bodies that we don't know where they are. If you were to go back to Greenwood for the 110th or 120th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, what do you think the neighborhood would look like? I really think it's up to the people that live there now and a lot of people that came to visit that said they wanted to be part of this community. Um, and also, does everyone agree that or will everyone decide if Greenwood is an idea or is it an actual geographic location? Um, we spoke to Guy Troop. Is Greenwood actually rising? That's an awesome question. Is Greenwood rising? Greenwood is clearly rising. Who's participating is the question. I'm Guy Troop, CEO of the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge. We sell coffee, frappuccinos, teas, and we have ready-made uh, breakfast sandwiches, pastries. He's a relative of a descendant, a woman, um, Seal Troop, who ran the Madam C.J. Walker Beauty Schools in the Greenwood area. Um, in his mind, it's too late. You know, this area has already been gentrified. There's a ballpark that takes up a large area where so many businesses and so many homes could exist. But I think having a central business district for people that look alike is the strategy. And so if you go all over this country, you see that. There's a Chinatown. There's a, an Italian neighborhood. There's a Jewish neighborhood. There's a gay neighborhood. So I wouldn't apologize for having an African-American neighborhood, an African-American business district. Our greatest legacy is that we have ancestors that have gone before us that were industrious, really creative in terms of building a community in the midst of racism. So that tenacity exists today because we wouldn't be having this conversation a hundred years later. Here, these are people that couldn't get any social justice. They were discriminated against, segregated, forced into this area, and they were able to create their own thing. And then they were seeking economic justice. They had created their own economic ecosystem and they were thriving there. Um, and to think about someone telling you, we don't want you around, but when you're doing well, there's a problem. Um, that's what kind of stuck out to me. Very powerful. It wasn't a moment. It was over a couple of days. It was a very powerful uh, period of time and a powerful place to be. And I think it's a place that just because of, of so many people's desire to come there and exchange ideas has been infused with so much meaning and just a, a certain spirit. I totally agree. Great. Thank you so much, Frank. All right. Thanks, Katie. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for being here. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, Caroline O'Brien, and Zach Felici. Special thanks for today's show are due to CNBC's Frank Holland, Louise Connolly, Brandon Gomez, and George Piero. Time for my daily reminder. Please subscribe to and share Squawk Pod. You'll get the best of our morning show and a little extra. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.